Where did we show up in spaces during COVID? What was remote learning for, from physical education? Um, this, was, this is an amazing time for us to pump into homes to sell physical education. We're in their houses. If our curriculum that we pushed out was an adult-based fitness model of let's do this HIIT workout with no aspects of play and no aspects of joy of movement, we probably unsold ourselves to parents because they could do that or they could put on a YouTube video that can do that. So, um, so that, that's all wrapped up in advocacy for me. Hi, everybody. Welcome to my Run Your Life podcast. And as always, I want to thank you for your time and energy and for tuning into any episode that you can. The whole idea behind my podcast series is to interview people from the world of education and beyond who are striving for both personal and professional excellence in their life through their work. What it is I love doing during my episodes is to take both a personal and a professional approach to the conversation, meaning that I really like to get to know them as a person on a deeper level, but also to dig deeply into their professional background and their experience and what it is that they've come to learn about themselves through their chosen field of work, whatever that field of work may be. In today's episode, I have Dr. Martha James on the show. And to give you a little bit of context here, Martha was on my podcast, it must have been two two or three years ago. We had an excellent conversation and she's somebody that I have always wanted to bring back on the show. So I managed to work out a time with her and uh, we recorded a few days ago. So Dr. James is a researcher, teacher and leader with nearly 30 years of experience in urban education. She's an assistant professor at Morgan State University in the School of Education and Urban Studies and also serves as policy chair on the Baltimore City Board of Education Commissioners. Martha brings a wealth of experience, knowledge, and wisdom into our discussion today. And we really dive deeply into many different aspects of teaching and learning in this episode in particular related to the field of physical education and health. Some of the themes that we go into are the importance of teacher reflection, differentiation, distance learning, professional accountability, and the impact that fear can have on school cultures. Based on Martha's many years of experience in the field, I asked her to identify what she feels to be the biggest gaps in regards to our profession. So Martha dives deeply into sharing her thoughts around uh, the gaps that she feels exist in our profession and that need to be addressed. So it was really interesting for her to shed light on these themes as well as to offer solutions. And that's what this episode was about. It was really not looking at all the problems that exist, but more so the opportunities that exist to make our profession better. So 
It was a really good discussion. I'm happy to have had her on the show again, and I'm sure that you will find great value in this discussion. So with that, let's jump right into my discussion with Dr. Martha James. Martha, it's great to have you back on the show. For those listeners who weren't around the first time for our first episode, I think you and I were talking about it before we recorded. I think it's been two or three years since our last episode, but you're one person that I definitely wanted to have back on the show. So I want to thank you for your time and energy and for being willing to uh, come back on the show. Thank you. It's an absolute pl- privilege and pleasure to be back with you again. And I've followed your, you're one of the ones on Twitter. You know, I have a, a network on Twitter and I like to see what people are doing. So I've kind of followed what you've been doing over the last few years. But just to set the context, I was hoping that you people heard about you in the intro but I was hoping that you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you're currently living and working, what your job title is, and even anything about early days that you want us to know, uh, just to set the context and the frame for the discussion today. Sure. Um, so my name is Martha James, and I am currently an associate professor at Morgan State University. To give a little context of Morgan, um, we are a historically black college and located in in the urban center of Baltimore City, um, in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, I have been at Morgan now for five years. My research focuses mostly around culturally relevant pedagogies and the theoretical concept of cultural fluency and interdisciplinary education. Um, My background, uh, so this marks about year 30 of me spending time in urban public education, specifically focusing around physical education but I've also spent in the last five years um, really curved my pathway into educational leadership and educational policy. Uh, I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, go Badgers. Uh, My master's degree is in inquiry-based education from Hamlin University in St. Paul, Minnesota. And my doctorate is actually in critical pedagogy um, under the larger umbrella of curriculum and instruction from the University of St. Thomas in Minneapolis. Uh, so I'm here. In addition to my university and my sort of scholarly work, I spend a, lo- a great deal of time in service. I currently sit as policy chair for the Baltimore City Board of School Commissioners, so the, the school board for the city. Um, so I manage a $2.1 billion budget and about 80,000 students. Uh, the curriculum and instruction of oversee the curriculum and instruction, the hiring and supervising the superintendent the balancing the budget, and then we also participate in some quasi-judicial um, affairs with uh, appeals and things around, around um, employment. Um, through that role, I also serve uh, nationally as a member of the Board of Directors for the Council of Great City Schools, which represents, I believe, the 78 uh, largest city school districts in the country. And I serve um, on leadership for the National School Boards Association in the Council of Urban Boards of Education. I was their former policy committee chair as well. So sitting in those spaces, um, I have my superintendent certification from the AASA, which is the Superintendents Association, in conjunction with Howard University. So all of those pieces make me a fairly systems perspective person on education. If there's, there's not a role within special ed or traditional ed, building leadership, district leadership, there's there's very few seats in which I haven't either sat or sat proximal to. So, so one of the questions that comes out, I mean, you're doing so much, um, and this is just a, a, a little uh, pit stop question, but how do you find time for you? You sound incredibly busy. So how do you 
prior, prioritize you and, and make time for yourself and your own well-being? That's a really, really important question, especially in sort of these uncertain times for people to lean into. So thank you. Um, honestly, I'm not very good at it. Um, I've, I've found that in my sort of more mature adulthoodness, I have two speeds. I'm either on and productive or I am binge watching ghost whisperer. Like <laughs> there's, there's no middle ground. Um, so that is actually my goal for the next six months is to try and find a middle ground where I can be both productive and sort of rejuvenative. Uh, and I think that probably is going to lend itself to me finding a way to be rejuvenative that is not in front of a screen. Um, so I've picked up running again. Um, I've been back on the golf course. I started kayaking. Um, I'm reading a lot. Um, but really, for me, that balance, it's never been my strength finding balance. Um, but it is, my, it is my goal to really, really lean into accepting the present moment, whether it's for, for its beauty, whether it's productive or whether it's not productive, and just sort of accepting more of that so I can be less polarized. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good focus. And what do you have to let go of within yourself to be able to put yourself in a position to be able to do that with more regularity? Um, fundamentally, and this is, this is that in our pre-conversation, this sort of that how vulnerable to be, but in, in a true answer, I have to let go of being defined by my accomplishments. Mm-hmm. I have to, I have to figure out a way to find validity and, 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 worth in myself that isn't about what I create or what I produce. Um, and so that, that's why it's, it's an intentionality around it and a goal because it's not easy to let go of those things that in many aspects of your life serve you incredibly well, mm-hmm. but don't necessarily serve the whole. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's, I think, a very worthy pursuit. And, and that's what we talked about uh, during these times of uncertainty. And since COVID has struck, um, I told you about some of the conversations I've been having with psychologists on the podcast and just friends doing some deep work in the uh, mental health field. And there is definitely an increase in, in anxiety disorders. There's a, an increase in sleep disorders. Um, there's a, an increase in depression right now. Um, as people are coming to grips with this unsettledness and it's very real and it's rearing its head in different ways for different people. But just to kind of sit in that space um, and to acknowledge that it, it exists in itself is not going to heal you, but it's part of the healing process or part of the process of figuring out who you are and kind of what what is going on under the surface. And and that's what I've learned through this whole thing. My wife is, ta- have you heard of Dr. Gabor Mate? No, not by name. Yeah, so he's quite a, a well-known Canadian um psychologist and and he does a lot of work around this field of what he calls compassionate inquiry and a lot of his thing is about intentionally creating space and sitting in discomfort and Mm -hmm. and without judgment and with compassion for oneself and that if you can sit in that space with compassion for yourself that that's you know one of the first steps to improving mental health wherever somebody is at on the spectrum you know if they have deep anxiety disorders or even just surface level anxiety disorders so it sounds like you investing that time is a very important part part of your process and what you you need to do right now personally and that's that's great and that will probably end up helping you professionally in the long run as well yeah it and it, it came about very much as 
you know, COVID hit and I made this list, you know, I'm going to write that book, right? I'm going to do this. And I found what I, what I called COVID paralysis of, I, not only could I not get started, I couldn't get out of bed because I had to finish the book in my mind and it wasn't finished. And if I'm not going to finish it today, well, then I won't even start it till tomorrow. Um, and so I ended up with two weeks of, I don't really remember if I even got dressed or showered kind of thing, mm-hmm. which is where I went, wait a second. It can't be about what you're done with at the end. It's gotta be about what you're doing along the way. Um, that said this morning before this, I did got nearly nothing accomplished. So, so whether that's a win <laughs> or a loss, we don't know, but yeah, well, learning yeah. recognize it is, is, is important for me. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, what I wanted to ask you just to define when you say critical pedagogy, can you just um, define for the listeners, what does that mean to you? And, and, um, what's the work that you've done around that? Beautiful. Absolutely. Thank you for that opportunity. Um, so critical pedagogy to me is sort of the science of institutional change. We, we in teaching lean towards pedagogy as the art and science of teaching. Um, but there's a, a greater greater definition to it in this more global overarching critical examination of systems. So for example, in my doctoral program, I was in the, in the program with members of the clergy. I was in the program with city civic planners. I was in the program with other educators. I was in the program with folks that work in nonprofit. And the idea is that if we continue to do systems reform, we're only going to reform systems. And, you know, if we, if we accept the posit that, institutions are uniquely designed to get the results that they get and we keep reforming institutions. We're just going to keep reforming the results rather than, uh, you know, what we really need is sort of a revolution. So I often use the healthcare field as an example, partially because I'm so far removed from it that it, I feel like it's a definition that can help the lay person understand. So our insurance system was set up initially to make sure that assembly line workers could be productive, so they weren't, you know, avoiding, you know, treating back injuries and avoiding um, communicable diseases so that the assembly lines could function. Insurance was not made for the poor or unemployed, and it was not made for the folks that held the intellectual capital or the managerial capital because they were paid income enough to afford doctors. So it was really just this small segment of society that insurance was set up for. We've now changed the system to where we want everyone to be covered by this system, but it's still the same system that is only designed to keep us just healthy enough to get to work, not healthy enough to thrive, not healthy enough to truly take care of early, you know, before work life and after work life. Um, So we keep reforming it and it keeps failing to meet the needs of all citizens. What we need is an actual healthcare revolution and how can we do it differently? And so critical pedagogy um, bases its work off off the teachings of Paulo Freire, of uh, Foucault, um, uh, yeah, Habermas, uh, some Marx is is tossed in there for fun. Um, Gramsci, you know, the, these sort of seminal thinkers in unconventional thinking uh, and how we can do systems of organization that are designed to get the results that will actually feed all of society rather than continuing to reinvent, reproduce, and reinforce the inequities that we see happening around, you know, around the world, around the country. Right. So, that, so, so I have applied that lens to criti- of critical pedagogy to education. 
Mm-hmm. Um, people sometimes would ask me, so 10 years ago, if you met me and I was on here, I would have been the common core lady, right? Because yeah. I was all about going around and trying and helping physical and health educators and what I termed encore content. So the arts, science, social studies, world languages, the encore contents to figure out how they were supposed to address the common core state standards in English language arts. Well, now I'm the equity lady and I'll get asked how, you know, who is, who are you? Were you that person or are you this person? I'm like, no, no, it's the same person because it's the same person who's looking at the systems we have and the tools within those systems to dismantle the inequities, to make things more, more successful for each participant. So it's not that I've changed who I am. It's just that the text and the medium has changed. Mm-hmm. And so that, that to me is critical pedagogy. So <clears throat> jumping into PE and health, and this is, you know, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was to describe your work. And we're, we're kind of there now in describing some of the work that you do and some of the work that you've done. But um, when you look at the physical education health teaching profession, what are some of the gaps, the biggest gaps that you're still seeing that need to be addressed and gaps within the system that if you apply critical pedagogy to that, you can address some of these things for the greater good of what PE and health is trying to accomplish beyond just the student and the school? So I, I put the gaps into four big buckets. The first gap is about funding and adequacy or advocacy. So funding and ad, ad, advocacy. Ooh, it's early this morning for me. <laughs> uh, so in that, it's, it's when schools get into challenging budget situations, like we're going to see when we do reentry. We've had all sorts of unanticipated costs around the United States anyway. Many people are calling and reaching out to me for they want to cut our PE program or we're going to go back in the fall and they're not going to do any physical education. So we have a huge gap in funding that is, that is about equity. Um, and it's not about equity, about PE teachers need to keep their jobs. Um, while that is important, that's not the equity I'm advocating for. I'm advocating for young people need physical activity and physical education. Mm-hmm. Um, and they need that from people who know what they're doing. So secondarily, I'm advocating for jobs. Uh, but I think the argument that many teachers unions are reaching out for support, you know, how do we save these jobs is not the right argument. The right argument is this is an essential life skill for young people that far too often we don't, we are not given the privilege or opportunity to learn that health matters until it's gone. Mm -hmm. So, so this idea of teaching is, so it's a funding inadequacy, inadequacy and an advocacy inadequacy. We have an advocacy inadequacy because we are our worst enemies as a profession uh, we are our worst enemies as far as not holding our shoulder shoulder colleagues accountable and saying, hey, Andy, I see what you're trying to do, and here's some strategies for how it could be better. Or, Andy, I see you're struggling. How can I help? Um, we walk into our team offices with our six colleagues, and we look at them with disgust inside our brains, but put a smile on and say, hey, Jim, how you doing this morning? Instead of saying, hey, this is life or death for these young people. Let, let's do this together. So, so when I say advocacy, it's internal within the profession, as well as how are we advocating and engaging with the external community? Where, where, where did we show up in spaces during COVID? What was remote learning for, from physical education? 
Um, this was, this is an amazing time for us to pump into homes to sell physical education. We're in their houses. If our curriculum that we pushed out was an adult based fitness model of let's do this hit workout with no aspects of play and no aspects of joy of movement, we probably unsold ourselves to parents because they could do that, or they could put on a YouTube video that can do that. So, um, so that that's all wrapped up in advocacy for me. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a, that, and I like to start with that big bucket because that's a big bucket we can influence. Mm-hmm. So, so much of, of the challenges facing physical education are outside or long-term or 10,000 feet uh, funding and advocacy. We can, we can start on today or yesterday. Um, another big gap I see within physical education is in instruction. It's what are we teaching and how are we teaching it? So within with, and not actually a lump curriculum. No, I'm going to keep them separate. Uh, with with curriculum, um, I think as we go reentry from COVID, you know, just for safety precautions, when when part of the CDC recommendations are that materials are not shared, most people, you know, most people outside of education look at that and say, oh, that's okay. Everybody should have their own pencil and notebook anyway. Everybody should have their own textbook. What they don't realize is that if I pick a basketball and I chest pass it to you, we just shared equipment mm-hmm. like in an instant. Um, so adhering to CDC recommendations is going to be very challenging. However, it also has this amazing opportunity for physical educators to push us away from a sports skill exclusive model. Um, so, so how can we, how can we learn to, to relate to our bodies and relate to other people's bodies in space and relate to developing agency and efficacy? Well, we don't actually need to, we can get that through throwing a basketball back and forth. We can get that from rock climbing, but we can also get that from, you know, setting goals and targets for ourselves for balancing on one foot. You know, there's, there's many, many ways to skin that proverbial cat. And I think this has the potential for curriculum to steer us in a, in a much more restorative way, in a much more play-based way. Um, that's more, more developmentally appropriate. Um, so there's that gap. And within that curriculum gap, is the districts that really have no guidance and no curriculum. So teachers are out there just sort of doing the best they can with what they have um, and what they have the biggest shortage of, and this is said with love, not with judgment, but the biggest shortage is a shortage of imagination. So I'm out there. I don't have a curriculum. I don't have much experience or imagination in anything other than what I know that got me into this, which was typically the end of my athletic life. So it was when I was playing division one, something, it wasn't when I was little leaguing it, that I, that I remember, although the little leaguing, it is what got me there. So, so there's those gaps in curriculum as well. Um, and then there's the gaps in, in, in culturally reflective curriculum and things that are, are truly important. Uh, you know, I, wonderful colleagues out there doing things like teaching world games for understanding, but when you do an analysis of the world games they're teaching, they're typically and preponderantly Northern European or Australian games. Um, and they're typically not from the indigenous or Aboriginal people in those places. And so, so yes, it's a step and yes, it's a lean to definitely moving in the right direction. We need to applaud it, but we can't stop ourselves at those spaces. So then the third bucket would be around instruction where I think there's a gap in physical education. Um, and that is in the folks that don't do any, the folks that do some and do it poorly, the folks that do some and do it, at, you know, do it pretty well. And then those that do it spectacularly. And how can we create professional learning networks that help 
help bring all those folks to, you know, to better. We think about the learning curve or the, the achievement gap with young people. Uh, and this is going to be hard to describe without a visual, but, um, you know, so you you have your bell curve and, you know, your regular bell curve with your high achievers, your low achievers, and then the bulk of people that are in the middle. Oftentimes when we think about educational equity, we think about raising up those that were falling behind. So, so steepening that curve, what we really want to do is move the entire belt forward while we steepen, because we don't want our high achieving students to not continue to achieve. So with instruction, what are we doing to differentiate? What are we doing to have representative instructional strategies? How are we intentionally working to ensure that we are not re-traumatizing or traumatizing kids with our instruction? Um, And because there's so much so it loops back through to advocacy because there's so much negative press out there around physical education and the harm we have done to people socially and emotionally uh, through, through benign neglect. Um, I don't think anyone has been intentional, but through benign neglect, we really need to look intentionally about what are we doing instructionally. Um, one of my biggest pet peeves, just on a, on a not even I want to worry about equity, but on just a fundamental high quality P piece um, I go into schools and, you know, kids are in their squads or their whatever their instructional organization system is to, to do attendance or what the, they need to do administratively. And then they say, all right, count off by twos, red team, get a jersey, blue team, get a jersey, and let's play basketball. The Los Angeles Lakers do not get off a plane and the starting five go right to the center of the court to play. They warm up, they practice, they do drills, they joke around, they review the cognitive aspects, yet we expect inexperienced, non-professional athletes to jump out and just play a game. Um, so, so there's lots around instruction that I think is gaps. And again, I like that because we can control that. Um, and then the biggest, the last big gap that I see is actually, um, this is calling my colleagues, trying to mentor for K-12, calling my, K- my higher ed colleagues to task. Um, we need to know better what quality, high, high quality physical education is. Um, going out and doing a two week observation to write up a research study does not mean you know what's going on in that gym, does not mean you know what systematically is happening in that school, does not mean you have any idea of the community in which you're working. So um, the PEAT community needs to understand uh, what is quality curriculum. What is, you know, what is, what is social emotional learning? Health and physical education have been social emotional learning. You know, it's the, the, I was the Olivia Newton-John song. I was country when country wasn't cool. We've been social emotional way back before anybody was talking about social emotional. If we chose to focus that way, if we chose to skip over standard four, if we chose not to listen to the benefit we had, if we didn't listen to Don Hellison and teaching personal social responsibility, if we didn't listen to the somatic movement people, we missed out. And now we have a chance to regrab that. Um, so Pete, I think needs to be on board with helping, helping our future teachers, our teacher candidates understand what truly high quality physical education looks like and is in a school. Um, and I, you know, and we need to be more invested in, in ensuring that can happen. So those are the big gaps that I see at this point. Um, yeah. So. so, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot there. And if we look at like moving in the direction where I think you and I both agree 
in the important in, in the importance of autonomy and agency and and as you said you talked about differentiation and I talk a lot about personalizing learning which is the same thing you know how are we going to personalize learning in a way that allows every single student an entry point into learning in a non-controlling uh, and compliant way it's it's actually putting learning in their hands so it's kind of at the crossroads of the the program that I think works best or that we should strive to work toward is that one that takes into account, you know, self-efficacy theory and, and looking at self-determination theory and, and Maslow's work around psychological safety and um, Bandura's work around self-efficacy, you know, so building up agency and autonomy is so important. As you said, the, the description, you, and I've seen this so much because I've been to so many schools through my consulting where I go and I, I observe for a few days and then I kind of like enter with the two-day workshop based on what I saw and what I had to kind of come up with in that moment to highlight both the good, but also areas that I hope that they would identify as being things they needed to work on. So as you say, the description of, you know, count off in twos, you take blue, you take red. Okay, let's play a game of basketball. So when I've gone in to present this idea of autonomy and agency, and in particular, I was in a, a Soviet bloc country um, that was really set on traditional sport, right? And they were like, well, we do this because it's important because the kids need to know this. And all the kids had to play these, these uh, small-sided basketball games. So they were saying, well, how else can you do it? And I'm like, well, you might consider maybe basketball and some other sports, you know, instead of just one single sport, but just a variety of sport exploration. And then those that are ready can play a 3v3 game or 4v4 game. Those that aren't ready can work on fundamental skill development in small groups, creating small modified games of their own. But there are definitely ways that you can differentiate and personalize learning, right? And then it goes back to also you said about, um, you know, not, you know, you go into a department and, and you know you might see a teacher doing things that you don't agree with that you know is not working and we don't say anything we just smile and walk past oh hope your day is going well that type of thing because critical feedback can be very hard to give and receive right so how can we in the in the long-term interest of our profession you know, because you're saying all the right things and I'm saying all the right things. We And we know that this is the direction where we want to, more teachers to go, but really at a, at, at not a grassroots level, but, but at a basic level, how can we get people to take more action and to understand that what's, what's being done right now is not working for the most part? And how can we do it in a way that is psychologically safe for teachers, where they don't feel threatened? And um, to really plant the seeds for, um, you know, movement and progress in our, in our field. Yeah, uh, and I, I think that that's the question. Um, and, and in fact, when I go out and I do my consultancy, um, and I'm, you know, right now in the current contemporary situation, you know, in the United States around this sort of awakening, um, I'm getting these calls. And my, my primary question to folks that are asking me to come out and work with teachers on cultural fluency and being more responsive is um, before I can come and work with your teachers on equity and have those courageous conversations, are you having courageous conversations about job performance 
well, nah, then, you, then you're frankly, you're not ready, right? You're just going to alienate people. So that brings, I think what we need most of all to make, make that kind of a shift is trust. Um, and in fact, David Horse, I'm, I don't want to say his last name wrong. Oh, wait, I have it here. Horse Auger. It, uh, the Trust Edge. Yeah. Phenomenal book. Um, he works around the world as well with this idea of building trust. And one of the things that he's done is he's quantified trust and been able to monetize it. So he's been able to pinpoint to an organization the amount of revenue that they are expending on a lack of trust. And the, the negative consequences of the real cost of doing business of not having a trusting organization. So I think that the, how, you know, how we develop trust as a profession is going to be very, very individual and site specific, but without that trust, without taking time, without the department chair saying, you know what, we are in fact going to break bread together. We are in fact going to co-plan because we're going to learn that we don't have to like each other, but we do need to trust one another. Um, And in that trust, there's, there's an embedded need for a growth mindset because I'm not going to walk by and be like, and he's doing that again, but I am going to have a real relationship so that if I say to Andy, you know, Hey, talk to me about your choices in that. Or I saw you really struggling with student A, B, or C. Could we role play that? So you can, so we can figure out some other solutions that are more and not have Andy feel attacked or Andy feel like that, 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 not only do, not does Andy feel devalued, but that Andy sees that conversation as a value add. Like, you cared about me enough to want to help me be better? Um, and that's a, that's a really hard thing because that flies in the face of our meritocracy. That flies in the face of our competitiveness that we teach. That flies in the face of most of the behaviors that got us to be successful movers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really think we need to, to do that. Um, it also flies in the face of the fundamental... Um, mythology that I see going on in, in education around fear-based decision-making. You know, kids are, kids are failing at an, an, uh, stand, a high-stakes standardized reading test. So therefore, we should slower and louder take away everything that's beautiful in their life and focus on what they're not successful on and bang reading into their head uh, when that approach on its light version wasn't successful. Um, so, so the entire culture of schools and how we engage with the media and the community and tax spaces and, and um, administration and elected officials is all around this, this fear, this fear of if they can't read, then they won't be successful rather than saying, hmm, let's actually look at the data and not be scared by it, but be honest with it in the same way we want to model all the way down to teachers Let's just look at the data and not be scared by it, but be realistic about it. Um, because I think then we'd get like around the reading example, we would get to places where people actually really listen to the research. So the research that says, you know, that young people have a better retention rate on reading skills if they have that experience the first thing in the morning. So schools across the United States have sort of made this sacred time that this is reading instruction time. And the, the data is right. That interpretation is a fear-based response. The non-fear-based response says, hmm, what happened right before that? Well, they ate, they were social, they were physical, and they were independently 
driven. So they, they were sitting if they wanted to sit. They were standing if they wanted to sit. They had some agency. So could we re- replicate physical activity, personal agency, nutrition, and relation throughout their day to maybe capture not just one 90-minute block, but four of them? And so when I say, you know, that, but, we, but we don't do that because we have a culture of, of fear. Um, and we have a culture of fear that, the, that then that ideology penetrates all the way down to stop Martha from saying to Andy, hey, Andy, what you, you did today was amazing. And I, I could never have pulled that off of students. Can I observe you? Can you talk to me about how you made that work? We can't get to those conversations if the entire institution is scared. Yeah. And, and as you say, fear-based and the, the model of um, professional development that we have at our school here is the first that I've seen in any of the schools. And this is one of the reasons why I came to this school. So my current role, I'm a, a pedagogical coordinator, which um, a big part of that is coaching. So I coach teachers and I try to jump in to co-teach whenever I can. So it's this great position where I can teach when I want to co-teach. I can, I can just stand back and collect data for the teacher um, it's been four years in the making this, this position. So I've, I've built up a lot of relationships in the school, um, so that we have a, a very good working relationship, you know, so I'm not their manager, I'm their colleague, you know, and I'm, we're in there figuring it out together. And it's a beautiful, uh, position because it gives you so much insight into teaching from a bird's eye view, but to still be grounded in teaching. Right. So that's what what has kept me in the trenches. And we're working very hard at this idea of voice and choice. But what does voice and choice really look like? And then what do you have to let go of as a teacher to be able to provide these choices to students? And and then it goes back to outcomes and standards and like, oh, my God, we got to meet the standard. Oh, my God. But I have no. (laughs) And they get so worried and it's like, no, let's just agree that these outcomes are just guideposts to roadmap the units that you teach and to offer kids a, an exploration of what's possible in a unit. And that really changes the dynamics when, when we're planning units, you know. Uh-huh. So when, when you're looking at, at um, teaching pre-service teachers, What's something that you think is critically important for them to understand when it comes to mapping out units and um, really focusing on conceptual understanding as much as skill acquisition, but what are some go-to strategies or things you say to them to get them to um, not work from a fear-based perspective on not covering outcomes, but to look at what's possible and to run with, as you said, the freedom to imagine. So that that's that's wonderful. And in my in my thinking, I'm like, hmm. Once again, stumped by Andy. <laughs> um, but I, I would go to to one of my most common experiences when I'm observing or when students write initial lesson plans or unit plans. They always, always, always write a, a plan for relay races. Like their first lesson that they want to do is relay races. Exactly. Exactly. They write it and then they, and the first lesson they do, if if they're out in front of young people, in front of uh, K-12 learners, boom, they do a relay race. And I'm just like, okay, so what about the rules of thumb? The rules that say um, use time, not repetition. What about the things of 
low stakes competition? What about practice before performance? What about, you know, uh, touches on and, and repetitions of, of practice as far as if they, you know, if there's 20 kids, how many, how many times did they actually get to dribble that basketball? Uh, what about differentiating? None of that. It all goes right out the window. And what I realized after about, unfortunately, it's one of those things where, and I'm sure you have these moments where you're just like, why didn't I figure that out 15 years ago? That's fear. They see those lines as controllable. They see kids sitting down, even if they're all jumping around and screaming and go, 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 and doing all this horrible, um, it's, I want to like, I want to figure out what the parallel for gender policing is for physical ability policing, but they're doing this, this peer policing of you suck and you're awful and come on, hurry. And come on, hurry. Is that person that sat at the end of the line? So they didn't have to go first. So now they have to go by themselves and last. And it becomes this, you know, Lord of the flies thing. But from my pre-service teacher candidates perspective, it's safe because they're safe because they can see them all. And they're all, they're all sitting and they're only running when they're supposed to. And it feels very, very comfortable. And there's organization and order. Right. Even in the disorder. Yeah. And, and so my biggest thing to my young people in that context about thinking about instruction and organization is how do you let go? How do you let kids, you know, how do you set, um, the Art of the Gathering, which if you haven't read the book, it's an amazing book. Um, and I think it's the best pedagogy book I've ever read, even though it's about throwing parties. Um, in, Art, in Art of the Gathering, she talks about generous authority. You have to have the, the, the edge of the sandbox laid out, but then let them play in it. You know, let them. So, so with my interns, it's how can you let go? How can you, how can you let... Uh, Absolutely. Safety comes first, unconditional, but that doesn't have to mean control. So that's one piece. Then looking at curriculum uh, across the the sort of scope and sequence of a year, um, looking at where's your balance? What, what are you, what's the hidden curriculum you're teaching based on your written curriculum? Um, if it's all sports skills, then, then we know you're teaching competition. You're teaching there must be a winner and a loser, unless you're doing it with a great deal of finesse and nuance. Um, if it's very, very fitness focused, uh, one of the things that, that comes in that teachers are like, huh? So if, if teachers have their students do a fitness assessment and the very next thing they do with that data is set goals for change, the fundamental message there is I'm not okay as I am. I must always be trying to change, which feeds itself really well into some other really non-productive ideologies we have in Western society. Um, so looking, so it's those sort of big ideological things I ask my young people to consider because I know once they get out into the, into the field and into classrooms, they're going to be, wait, what was his name? And where's the light switch? And how do I find the bathroom? And there's so many choices. They'll be so overwhelmed that it'll take them, I think, three to five years to be able to rethink some of those ideological questions. So I like to plant them before they leave. Um, because otherwise I think if we, if we and Pete spend too much time just technically preparing young people, they may be decent technicians, but they will not necessarily be decent, be phenomenal educators. Right. And, and when I think of what you're saying, I, I think I keep going back to um, Maslow's work around psychological safety, you know, like for what you're describing, like the relay race, I've seen it. And I just want to cry when I see that, because I, I think of those kids 
who stumble, they're slow, uh, they're pushed to the back of the line because they're slowest, as you said, and they're hiding. And yet they have to perform in a group setting because that's what the teacher thinks is best and that's the way they were taught. So they feel in their heart, they're not, the teachers have the best of intentions, but they feel that this is the way PE needs to be taught. And um, when my last year of teaching was in 2014, and I, I felt I was doing some pretty good things and I was starting to see the light the last seven years, seven, eight years of my teaching and doing these things. And when I've gone into more of a consulting coaching role, um, and, and really looking back at, I can't bring my values as a coach into my coaching conversations. I, I can only ask questions and, and try to guide teachers and then jump in to um, collaborate with them when that's what they want. And luckily where I am, I have a bunch of great teachers who are super willing to grow and learn. And I want to share one success story um, because this to me was such a rewarding thing as, as a coach, but it was a music teacher, right? And the music teacher had, had been teaching in um, the States for most of their career and then went to Asia, taught there, and phenomenal musician, can play every instrument, phenomenal, right? And really into it, his heart is into music. And I went into observe a class, it was a grade two class, and let's say there's 20 kids in the class, then the majority of kids were disengaged, not focused, behavior management. He's putting out fires left and right. And he's a good teacher and he, he knows how to teach. And he, at the end of the lesson, was like, that sucked. That, I'm so embarrassed that you had to see that lesson. And, and then he was open and he was like, let's talk about it. We, we chatted about it. And I said, okay, well, what was the task? And he was able to articulate clearly what the task was. And the task was the same for all students. They had to be able to play this song on this instrument. They all had their sheet music. So, of course, when you're looking at all the students, you know there's such a wide range of ability. You have the high flyers that are killing it, that are so bored. Then you have the kids that don't even know how to hold the instrument, right? So then we had some conversations about differentiation and he felt that every kid needed to learn individually first. And I said, okay, well, let's, let's talk about it. Is that the most important thing or can they pair up with somebody if they choose to? And he's like, well, I guess so. So then what we did was we created a new lesson plan to redo that lesson where the kids could come in. There was a little refresher. They could choose to work alone. They could choose to work with somebody. They, and, but then they had four different songs to choose from mm -hmm. okay and the sheet music so the basic sheet music all the way up to the advanced sheet music but then they could also improvise and innovate and just create their own music i said so let's lay those choices out to the kids and then let them choose and then i'll come back in and i'll observe and i'll take data on engagement for the next few classes so when i went back in you know the previous data showed that 70% of the kids were disengaged and, and messing around, right? The next few classes, it dropped down to two kids in the class that were disengaged and they had behavior problems. So then it was like, okay, well, this is what we need to do for them. So it wasn't a perfect situation, but disengagement dropped by 60%. Mm -hmm. So then he was like, oh, I, this is amazing. And from that day forward, 
He planned every single lesson after that, where there was multiple choices, multiple entry points, and his teaching just flourished. And then his musical abilities and his musical talents came alive and he was able to coach in the right moment and see who needed help and who didn't Mm -hmm. success story just by really breaking down what's possible. Right. So I share that because that's a living example of what it looks like and it is achievable. And everything that you're talking about is, is about this idea of entry points to learning. So when, when you consider in moving forward, if you were to run your own conference, because a lot of the conferences being run are still activity-based and this is how you play this game. And here's, you know, as Dr. Aaron Beatley says, he gets sick and tired of hearing, here's a pool noodle here. Let's learn 101 ways to play tag with a pool noodle. <laughs> yes. And, and Aaron and I have had this conversation. Yes. And it's also important to learn to play. Like, you know, so I came out of an undergraduate program that did not teach us any games or any strategies. And it's like, okay, but now I have this great idea, but I don't know how to do it. So so there's, there's, I think there's some of both. And so how would you structure a, a conference? If you could run a conference, say in three months time, face-to-face or online, it doesn't matter, but how would you structure it in a way that really digs up deeply into the core essence of what you think matters in moving the profession forward? Um, I would, and, and so now, now the hamsters are just running. Um, I would think that the ideal conference would be small, it would, it would be maybe, maybe 60 people. And then within that create some clusters of critical colleague cohorts and, um, a nice mix, a lot, a lot of theoretical, um, because I think some of the theoretical got missed. And one of the challenges as somebody who's revising programs in higher education, in pre-service teacher education is how much scaffolding that they need of what to do in order to hang how to do it on. And then where do you put the why to do it? So traditional college, um, and, and I know this sounds circular, so I'll try to get back to it. But in traditional higher ed programs, um, for instance, if you were going to teach, uh, you wanted to be a professional cyclist, ride a bicycle, you'd take history of bicycles, you know, in early America, you take the history of the wheel and then the history of the bike, bicycle, and then you take bicycle mechanics, and then you take sociology of bikes, and then you take psychology of bikes, and then you take art, craft, and design of bikes. And then your final, your senior year, they say, okay, now learn to ride a bike. So that's how we do teacher education, right? So the problem with that is because they haven't learned to ride the bike yet. They've not been in a classroom. They haven't seen it. That history, philosophy, sociology of bike bicycling, or in this case, teacher education, doesn't really land. It doesn't stick with them. It doesn't have meaning because they haven't done it. So... So the ideal conference to me would, would have, have some theory-heavy, some con- critical conversations around either texts or problems of practice, um, individual expertise, but much with a very flattened leadership. Um, quality, quality sessions where you, you spend time, not, not stand and deliver, but 15-minute overview and then really dig into what's happening in your space and where are you on this journey. And then the physical activity pieces of that be much more play-based for the participants, you know, we're going to go, you know, when I was at, um, one of my favorite keynotes that I did was at shape Montana. We went stand up paddleboarding as a group at the end, we played, um, spike ball, not in a session where we went to learn about playing spike ball, but because spike ball was there at the picnic and somebody said, let's play. 
So we learned can jam and spike ball and stand up paddleboarding, not much more like we want our classrooms to be. Here's these activities. There's an expert nearby that'll show you how to do them. Here's some drills and practice, but it was all self-directed. We do that as adults because it, it's beautiful and that's how we like to learn. Well, so do young people. Mm-hmm. So, um, so modeling the class, the conference, much more like we would want to model actual instruction. Um, and then this ideal conference of mine would be small enough and remote enough that it would be about relationship building and creating a system of accountability buddies that, that will hold each other up and help uplift and, and do that advocacy work and work on the policy aspect of things and really be a cohort that will rise together uh, throughout their careers. Can I go to it? <laughs> Yeah, but like, I, no, that's what I said. The hamster just started running. And I was like, I want to go make this happen. <laughs> if, if we did, but, so like teacher candidates graduate in June, they come to this like young professionals conference. We get 10 teacher candidates from across the country or 60 from across the country, bring them together, put them in groups of 10 and watch their careers for the next 30 years and, oh, yeah. you know, and make this the new model of, of teacher education pre-master's experience. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds amazing. And that's, that's real life teaching, you know, and that's what it's about. And to segue into the, to the part I wanted to ask you about, which was the changing face of PE in these times of uncertainty. And um, I told you that I wanted to kind of share with you what we're working on. So, and you said it already before, but what opportunities are available now? So, you know, we can look at being cursed. This happened to us and we can, moan about it and complain and think it's just impossible we can't share equipment how in god's name are we going to teach pe now um but we're trying to look at it here as a genuine opportunity so just in a nutshell what we're doing next year is that and again this is you know cultural specific you know um and you i wrote this down but culturally relevant in our context so you know, we're a science and technology university. There's 7,000 people in our community. Um, there's 500 kids in elementary school, um, lots of different cultures. But with social distancing, we can get a max of 14 kids in a classroom, okay? Even though there's 18 to 20 kids in a class. So there's a lot of spillover. So we're going to have a lot of extra homerooms next year. But what we're doing is because there's social distancing, we're, uh, we've asked the parents to um, supply a PE pack. So each kid is going to have a yoga mat, a skipping rope, and tennis balls. Nice. And, and a bicycle with a helmet, of course. So that's going to be our year in PE right there. So what we're going to do, at least to start the year in, in this unknown time, so then during the day, they have their PE pack in the classroom at all times. So then the teacher can do quick breaks with the skipping rope, the homeroom teacher, uh, mm-hmm. to, for the kids to do skipping or yoga. And the way we're setting up the outdoors at recess time, we're going to have cycling paths specific for grade one and two with little zebra crossings, crosswalks and uh, stop signs and stuff. And then we're going to have a different path for grade three and another path for grade four and five. So the kids are going to park their bikes not outside the school, inside the school, so that they can ride their bikes inside the school. We're going to try to encourage the teachers to ride their bikes to school so the teachers can take their kids out during the day to ride these paths to give them body breaks. So 
So then um, we're going to have stations set up around the school. We're going to have a skipping station. We're going to have like this yoga chill out area. Um, we're going to have a ball, kind of an individual ball skill development area. So then the PE program will be built around doing a 12-week unit in cycling. So we're not going to do just the six-week. We're doing 12 weeks. And we're going to go hard with road safety and getting kids really competent. And then we're going to do yoga. We're going to do skipping, very much individual pursuits based. Um, but that the kids can take action at recess time. So mm-hmm. if we're really inspired to skip, they'll be at the skipping station. So we can observe and collect data and see which stations are really popular, where are kids gravitating towards. But then the teachers can also release the kids when they need it to go to these stations during the day because it's going to be a lot of sit-down time during the day because they're not traveling to different classes. Mm-hmm. So we have to let go of standards and outcomes. And we have to say in these as times of uncertainty, we have to advocate for kids, create a psychologically safe place to allow them explore, to explore what's possible. And, you know, I'm on the leadership team and we're totally supporting it, you know. So um, it's, it's an exciting time and I'm really excited to see what's possible. But how does that sound to you? And then what can schools, because schools in the U.S., there'll be lots of um, situations where parents can't afford to send PE packs in. Right. You know? So each school has to adapt and modify, but that's just one example. But mm-hmm. what are your thoughts about that? And then how does each school have to look at this differently depending on their own context? Uh, well, yeah, I, a, I think it sounds like an amazing concept. Um, you know, obviously the, the resources would be a challenge in taking that to scale, um, to, to, you know, sort of a, a, a penetrating kind of perspective, uh, presence. Um, I love, you know, I, I think that I, I personally am I'm so excited to see the jump rope teams that are going to come out by, by January because of all the things kids are going to figure out to do. Um, I would say that one thing that I'm, I'm really wrestling with this, so this is a really inf- infant philosophy idea that I've been pondering around lately, is what is our role as physical educators in teaching competition? Mm-hmm. You know, we still, you know, we, we want this mindful world. We want, you know, we want co- collaborative play. We want teamwork, all those things. We also, I think, have a responsibility to teach safe and appropriately how people can win with grace and lose with dignity. Um, and well, I'm, I'm loving that we're moving away from a central focus on competition and skill performance. I feel, still think it's part of the mix and I don't think we should throw it all out with the baby with the bathwater. Um, especially as you know, we're, we're really finally honestly addressing things like bullying and those things that, that are then really negative and corrosive aspects. But there are some things about competition that kids need, or they get to a situation where, you know, the little dog barks at the big dog and the big dog responds and the little dog is crushed. Yeah. So we want it. So kids also need to know that there's cause and effect. Um, so bikes are great for that because if you don't keep pedaling, you know, you fall over. So it's, it's an instant, very concrete cause and effect. If you don't communicate that you're passing on their left, well, you crash cause and effect. Um, so there's some really great things, life lessons that can be taught through things around by cycling, you know, or around sort of big things where you're moving faster than your body can move or farther than your body can move that are really helpful. So I think as long as there's, there's process time 
in those. So, you know, how did you show up today? What was, what was your goal that they can, they can still get to some of that win with grace, lose with dignity aspect. Um, cause I think, I think we'll be in a bad spot if we let it go completely. Mm-hmm. And, um, how, how we, how we take that to scale. I think the idea of really changing the fabric of the school day to understand that you may not have a 50 minute physical education period, but you most assuredly should never have 50 minutes without it. So, uh, so how, you know, embracing that and the role of the physical educator, um, as a consultant. <clears throat> so both if, if you can teach and in, in your space, you know, many of our schools, the actual physical gyms are being taken over to create larger classrooms yeah. and the response of physical educators. Well, then I can't teach. And I'm like, yeah, sorry. That's where I go back to. And if anybody's heard my presentations, I often end with the idea of we need to shift from a but mentality to an end mentality. Yeah. So they took, you know, I could do that, but they took my gym. I could, t- I could teach social distance, but I don't have a gym. No, I could teach social distance. And since I don't have a gym, I will need a jump rope for everyone. Or I will need to be able to not have 50-minute class periods, but 20-minute class periods so I can have 10 kids in the hallway. You know, so, so there needs to be some intentional thinking with that lens towards we're doing this. We can either do it reluctantly. We can do it, you know, poorly. We can do it half-heartedly, or we can do it really well for our kids. And much like people's bodies during COVID that I I said early on, sort of colloquially and jokingly, people were either going to end up with like prison bodies because all they were going to do was work out or they were going to end up 50 pounds overweight. (laughs) And there was no in between. So my fear is that physical educators are that polarized when we go back and we face this, they'll be, they'll be the, the, the folks like you, um, you know, that are, are creating really great, innovative, developmentally appropriate, culturally relevant plans for your school. And then there'll be the, oh, I can't do that. I don't have a gym people. Um, and unfortunately the, I can't do that. I don't have a gym people will be the people that have the louder voice. And that those funding can then say, oh, well, they can't do it, so let's cut that funding. They can't do it, so let's not advocate for it. So circling back to that need for policy and advocacy and funding. Um, And I just remind anyone who's listening, if you're in that situation where your school is thinking about actually cutting physical education in the fall, fall back on policy. You have policy. Every school district in the United States that gets federal funds to support their meal service program has a federally mandated wellness policy. One of the legs of that wellness policy specifically states the need for physical education. So if your school cuts physical education, they are in violation of a policy. Remind your school board of that. Remind your superintendent of that. And then they will either have to publicly admit to the world they're changing policy, or they will have to comply and keep physical education in place. So um, so, so yes, Everybody should have a plan. Um, yes, the individual activities, you know, we, things like, like juggling. So what, think about what you can do with a tennis ball. You can stretch, you can strengthen, you can skill, you, you know, great materials. Um, the, there's a couple people that are online that have done some really, really amazing work um, here in the States, and I'm sure there's more, but like Mike Morris um, and Karen, um, Karen Paulson, um, with doing snippet videos so that there's enhancements that classroom teachers are going to need things like that as well. 
because we, we created them for COVID for home and parents, but classroom teachers are, are afraid. So they, they bought into that soup, uh, soup of fear. Uh, when I go around the country and I do interdisciplinary training, oftentimes classroom teachers will say, you know, Martha, that's a great idea, but I can't do that with my kids. So again, going back to that, but, and so Martha, that's a great idea, but I couldn't ever do that with my kids. And the, you know, the, the silent response inside my head is that's great, Martha. And now that we've realized you're afraid of your kids, we can actually work on how you can teach a management system that they can absorb, that they can move. Um, so there needs, there needs to be some targeted professional development around this for physical educators, for administrators, and for classroom teachers. Um, but absolutely, I think, I think you're on the right path for how we do this. We just have to know we can do it and be empowered. Yeah, and I want to add one thing to that. And everything you're saying is this idea of, um, you know, again, going back to compassion. You know, we talked about compassion before, but compassion for self. And, and if, if PE teachers are trying something out and new to be compassionate towards self, to know that it might not work out at the start, but let's not forget the power of student voice as a, yeah. as a data point. And, and to really look at student voice and to, to get where they're at with things. And how about even having a talk with the students saying, this is what I'm struggling with. Mm -hmm. this, this is what I can't do anymore with you um, because of what has happened. This is what I'm thinking I want to do. So we're going to try this for a month. We're going to try this for a unit, but you matter and your experiences matter to me. So you tell me what's working and what you like and what I can do better. Mm -hmm. And actually, you know, in a democratic approach, involve the students in the co-construction of this new uncertainty. And how can that not be a win? And some teachers will say, oh, no, no, we can't involve them. They don't know what, about pedagogy. They don't know about outcomes they don't know about this that, that i'm not talking about that you're the expert in that area right you're but the one that does the framing and the wordsmithing <laughs> involve them in the conversations and let them know what you're struggling with you know and that goes back to vulnerability you don't have to be a star you don't have to know everything you don't have to be the hero of the school um and and you can involve them and and they will make you better at what you do and I think you said something really critical in there, um, in that in that sort of metacognition of looking to the young people to say, this is what I'm really struggling. This is what I'm going to miss that I used to get to do with you. Um, and one of those things that came to my mind as I, as I, so I'm listening to you as the teacher, I'm like, well, what would I answer as kid Martha? And I'm like, ooh, touch. We're going to lose touch. We're going to lose physical reinforcement touch. And I really strongly believe that touch is a human need. And so how, so thinking about things like that, that we'll lose in this separation. So intentionally taking the, you know, the, the yoga space and portion and having kids, kids bind and wrap. So they're touching themselves so that at least that touch hunger can be mitigated. Um, otherwise, you know, I, I, when I did my dissertation work, I realized this phenomena that I called incidental violence. And it was the violence that kids didn't really even notice. It was the walking by and bumping into each other. It was, you know, standing in line and the, the, the jostling and pushing and shoving. And as I intentionally incorporated more physical touch into my pedagogy, into my instruction, and had them, you know, linking elbows, and, and all, almost all of that went away. Mm -hmm. 
And so I, you know, I could, I'm not a, you know, a brain, a neuroscientist. So I couldn't say if it was about the fact that they were gaining better peripheral understanding and proprioception. So they weren't accidentally knocking or if they didn't need to knock because they were getting that met. Uh, but certainly we see, you know, in, in, especially around, you know, young men um, and the hypermasculinity that the only way to get physical touch is to either hurt someone or through sexual conquest. Well, maybe if we let young men learn to, you know, that we taught them how to, how to, do, how to brain dance themselves and squeeze and slap and brush, they wouldn't need to be inappropriate to yeah. get their touch per month. Maybe kids wouldn't have to fight in school to, because it's the only appropriate way to touch somebody and you just really need to be touched, but you don't have the skills or language to say, and we don't have a society that you can walk up to somebody and say, I just need to hold your hand for five minutes. Cause I'm really just off balance today. You know? Um, so I think that physical educators as they're looking or administrators, as you're looking to see what are you going to do to be social distanced, to be academic in your, in your teaching, whatever your content is, what's going to be gone and how can you replicate that in some way that is safe? Yeah, that's, that's interesting that you talk about that because that's that idea I mentioned Dr. Gabor Mate before and what he talks about in his clients when he works with them. He often, as they talk about what they're going through, they self-console. So they're literally like brushing their arm or they're brushing their legs. And, and he points it out and he says, well, actually, you know, I, I want you to pay attention to what you're doing right now. You're consoling yourself, you know, with physical touch. And, and what you bring up is very important to consider is that how can you get kids to console themselves or to, to create that sense of contact that is soothing because mm-hmm. it increases oxytocin and, and physical contact. And that's what it does. It's, it's bonding and it increases oxytocin and it increases connection. So that's a really interesting thing for uh, PE teachers listening to this uh, episode to think about as they move forward with how can they create the conditions for that. So um, to uh, move into the last part, Martha, I said we were going to end with what has inspired you during these times of uncertainty. Um, and then I'll ask you where people can find you on social media. So during these unti- times of uncertainty, since Mar- I don't know when it's been, do you have a, a day? For, for us, it was like March 22nd or something. But, but what was your, your day when all the shit went down? <laughs> it was about a week before that. Um, our My university president was very proactive and realized that, especially given the number of international students and students that are out of state that we have, that when we went on spring break, it would be irresponsible to ask them to come back if we were going to have to close after. So we went on spring break and told students that they would not be coming back for at least a few weeks, um, which gave us some time. So, yeah, so I was, I was early, or mid, mid the like 11, 12, 13 of March, someone there. So what's inspired me? Um, I've done a great deal of nesting uh, and nesting has been really soothing. I, I've regenerated um, some things. I've regenerated. I've been painting. Um, I've been drawing a little bit. Uh, I started running again and I didn't think I'd ever be able to run again. Um, so this, this, you know, the, the silver lining of this experience in my, in my athletic history, uh, you know, you, you set a big, hairy, audacious goal for yourself. When you accomplish it, then you're like, okay, now what? And I think we talked about that on my, on my last visit here. Um, so after I finished my Ironman, then I just kind of 
laid around for, I mean, I did run two more marathons, which is not inconsequential for a whole lot of people. I get that. But then, you know, I find myself four years later of like, eh, go, go for a run. And I get like a half mile. I'm like, really? Why just walk or, or don't. And the beauty of having this kind of concentrated time to be sore and recover and to go out for a run for, and, and you know, okay, so I only ran a mile today. Well, I'll run three miles on Thursday and then to be able to build it up over time. So it wasn't this failure cycle, but it was a small win cycle. So, so I was able to find a small win cycle because I had the time to do it. So I was able to start running. I started kayaking. I took golf back up again, which, you know, anybody that golfs knows that there's, there's a certain level of, of crazy in that just because of the gambling aspect of I'm horrible. I'm horrible. I'm horrible. I hit one decent. I should play this game forever. (laughs) Um, so I've, I've really leaned into that. And I think if I were to think about what I hope the world can take away from this, from an education perspective is how many of us relied on the arts and how many of us relied on self-directed physical activity, whether it was move the living room furniture and dance. Uh, we have a, we have a weekly dance party in my kitchen. We cook Sunday dinner. We have a dance party. You know, if that's what we as, you know, as adults are doing, what are we doing as a, as a unethical practice from preventing young people from developing those skills to cope with, from developing those, those opportunities to express understanding. Um, the, recently, I've been doing a lot of presenting on the intersections of mindfulness, restorative practices, and cultural fluency. If we don't have, you know, the, the arts and physical education are where those, those things live organically. So it's not an add-on. It's not a, a, a grant-supported secondary supplanting curriculum. So we really need to lean into what, what the value and benefit of aesthetic instruction, of movement awareness, of the joy of play, of the intersections of, of goal setting and accomplishment, of, of working on an artistic piece over and over and over again until you get it right. Those are the kinds of things that are 21st century skills that we pretend to try and teach because we're scared through reading and math, where if we can really embrace those, I think that the world can be a better place for an acceptance of the validity and necessity of the arts, health, and physical education. So, so I'm hoping my, my life lesson in this experience, I'm hoping I can help evangelize that to policymakers and educators across the country. Oh, I love that. And I love the, the role of the arts. And as, as I said, I, I coach music, art, and uh, visual art, and PE teachers. And I feel incredibly fortunate to do that because it's such a creative pursuit, you know, movement is a creative pursuit. And when I see these teachers who their lives have been changed through the arts and movement, and they are so committed, they're so committed um, to providing that same value that they found to their students. And there's a, our teacher that I work with here, um, and he's got such an amazing mind. He was a classroom teacher for years. And then he, you know, he's an artist, but he's like, I'm going to teach art again. So he said when he was designing a unit, we we're having this conversation and, it, and we were caught up in what is the product going to be? Right. And then, yeah. and then he like took a step back. And then aside from the coaching conversation, he's like, I 
dude, I wake up in the morning, I make coffee and I doodle and I go through like 10 pages and I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. And I doodle and I love it and I don't create anything. And that's me as an artist. So why, why would I force my students to have to create a final product? Mm -hmm. And I, I wasn't trying to imply that he had to. And I was like, oh, my God, you're so right. So let's just let the tinkerers tinker mm -hmm. in the art class and then, and then reshift the success criteria for what they're doing. So they're not, you know, the success criteria might be finding joy through whatever it is you're working on. I don't know what, it, you know, but this, it, it was such a profound moment in our relationship together in knowing him as a teacher. And I was like, I would have loved to, have you as my art teacher mm -hmm. why does everything have to be a product why do we have to be physically literate in everything we don't you know so it's and and what you're saying and i don't mean to go off track and i want Ooh, to end the show, i want to end the show with your words and not mine but what you just sparked in me is this desire and passion i have to um be much less product focused and more joy and delight and relevance uh, focused. And because we've all been there with what we have uh, found passions in. So we sometimes forget that when we're teaching and we become too product and fear based, you know, as you say, if they don't produce this perfect friggin' drawing uh, that's worthy of display in the hallway, then I have failed as an art teacher. Um, you know what? You're not being judged for that. You're being judged by inspiring that student to want to draw pictures every day when their home life is shit and they, they have a pencil and a, a pad of paper and they're, they've found joy in drawing pictures because that takes them away from what they're going through, you know, and then gives them hope. So that's what this whole process in education is about to me. So, mm -hmm. um, but I want to return back to your words <laughs> to end the show. Um, sorry for going off there, but. Uh, no, no, I just, I just follow up on it um, just really quickly. And I know that time is of the essence here, but that, so there, there's a cultural lens to that. And a lot of teachers sit there. Yeah, I want that for my kid, but those kids aren't ready for that. Those kids don't have secure skills enough to be able to do that. And what I'd like to see is this not being a, an ideology of whiteness, but this being an ideology of empowerment that everyone should have access to. Um, you know, and, and I think that that's one of the things that I rub up against often in urban centers is, you know, the, this idea of, of blue projects. So when my son was in Montessori school, he taught me this lesson about art that you're, you're explaining. I go in to pick him up and it, you know, what'd you do at school? Oh, come see my project. So I go over to see his project. He'd taken three paper lunch bags and filled them up with other paper lunch bags and taped it together in this sort of chicken gizzard looking shape and painted it blue. And I think he glued a feather on it or something. And my first response as a completely inarticulate mother was, what is it? Which he looked back at me and goes, why does it matter what it is? It's blue. And I was like, that right there that lesson right there, it doesn't matter what it is. I don't need you to draw a house. I need you to want to draw so that you can imagine a Frank Lloyd Wright creation that no one else ever could have. 
when it comes to making a house, you know? So, so I am wholeheartedly on board with you on that and would like to actually put a, put an emphasis on that message, especially for our teachers who are teaching in impoverished areas or teaching in spaces where the entire society is saying, you have to come out looking like this, or they're going to think you're less than when in fact, how about we embrace this? Just, just, just be you and you're going to be great. And we're going to guide you there. Um, sure. We're going to push sometimes. Absolutely. Cause high standards matter, but we're going to listen to you. We're going to listen to the community and we're going to all be better for the process, not just the product. I love it. And I love our conversations, Martha. Um, I remember our first oh, one. Have some visit. Yeah. <laughs> um, where can people find you on social media? So the easiest place to find me is on Twitter and I'm at Dr. James Hassan, which is D-R-J-A-M-E-S-H-A-S-S-A-N. Um, I also have a Facebook at Martha James um, Hassan, but I don't, I don't check that one very often. Yeah. Um, and to this point, I've stayed off the gram because that's where my kids are and I want them to have a social media space of non-surveillance. <laughs> uh, but now that they are... Yeah, oh, there we go. I, I, that, that sounds like a lot of figuring out. <laughs> um, um, but I, 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 might, I might step up my game here. <laughs> okay, but Twitter, well, Twitter is the best place to find me. I'll, uh, I'll include that in the show notes. And uh, I really want to thank you for your time. The conversations are always great. And I hope to meet you because we've never met in person. Um, so hopefully uh, one day we can meet in person someplace. But um, I really respect your work. I respect your passion for what you do. And I respect you wanting to make an impact in the profession. And also, I deeply respect your ability to create that quiet space for yourself over the last few months to kind of work on you and and to uh, get yourself in the best place possible so that you can be in the best place for others. So thanks for your time. Absolutely. Thank you, Andy. Appreciate it. So I'm going to close out this show here. Everybody, thank you for listening to my episode with Dr. Martha James. And I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. You're listening to the Run Your Life podcast with host Andy Vasily. 